You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Salman Rushdie. This program originally aired in 2015. Thank you. Thank you. Um, or you could go on. <laughs> uh, I, um, I'm going to start off by reading a little bit because, you know, one of the strangest accusations that was leveled at me during the years of the attack on the, on the satanic verses was, um, which I heard a lot from a lot of different sorts of people, not all of them Muslims, by the way, which was the, the sentence, he did it on purpose. I thought, how would you spend five years working on a novel by accident? (laughs) Um, Of course, obviously I did it on purpose. Um, The question is, what do you mean by it? And so I thought I'd just read a little bit, which is about an early period in my life when I was at, at, at Cambridge University and I was studying history, and while I was there, I studied, I learned, I studied the rise of Islam, the, the life of the Prophet and the rise of Islam, and, and, uh, and I came across this, this incident, which is known as the incident of the Satanic Verses, and, um, and that became something I carried around with me and eventually became a part of the novel that I wrote with that title. So I just thought I'd talk to you about what I learned about the real history um, at that time. And this is, this is a story about, it takes, this passage that takes place, obviously, in Arabia in, 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 uh, in the early part of the 7th century AD. They were nomads who had just begun to settle down. Their cities were new. Makkah was only a few generations old. Yathrib, later renamed Medina, was a group of encampments around an oasis without so much as a serious city wall. They were still uneasy in their new urbanized lives and the changes made many of them unhappy. A nomadic society was conservative, full of rules, valuing the well-being of the group more highly than individual liberty, but it was also inclusive. The nomadic world had been a matriarchy. Under the umbrella of its extended families, even orphan children could find protection and a sense of identity and belonging. All that was changing now. The city was a patriarchy, and its preferred family unit was nuclear. The crowd of the disenfranchised grew larger and more restive every day. But Makkah was prosperous, and its ruling elders liked it that way. Inheritance now followed the male line. This, too, the governing families preferred. At the gates to the city stood temples to three goddesses, Al-Lat, Al-Manat, and Al-Uzar, winged goddesses like exalted birds or angels. Each time the trading caravans from which the city gained its wealth left the city gates or came back through them, they paused at one of the temples and made an offering. Or to use modern language, they paid a tax. The wealthiest families in Mecca controlled the temples and much of their wealth came from these offerings. 
The winged goddesses were at the heart of the economy of the new city, of the urban civilization that was coming into being. In the building known as the Cube, or Kaaba, in the center of town, there were idols of hundreds of gods. One of these statues, by no means the most popular, represented a deity called Allah, meaning the god, just as Allah was the goddess. Allah was unusual in that he didn't specialize. He wasn't a rain god or a wealth god or a war god or a love god. He was just vaguely an everything god. It may be that this failure to specialize explained his relative unpopularity. People making offerings to gods usually did so for specific reasons. The health of a child, the future of a business enterprise, a drought, a quarrel, a romance. They preferred gods who were experts in their field. Uh, to this unspecific all-rounder of a deity. However, Allah was about to become more popular than any deity had ever been. The man who would pluck Allah from near obscurity and become his prophet, transforming him into the equal or at least equivalent of the Old Testament God, I am, and the New Testament's three in one, was Muhammad ibn Abdullah of the Banu Hashim family, which had fallen in his childhood on hard times an orphan living in his uncle's house. As a teenager, he began to journey with that uncle, Abu Talib, on his trading journeys to Syria. On these journeys, he almost certainly encountered his first Christians, adherents of the Nestorian sect, and heard their stories, many of which adapted Old and New Testament stories to fit in with local conditions. According to the Nestorians, for example, Jesus Christ was born in an oasis under a palm tree. Later in the Quran, the Archangel Gabriel revealed to Muhammad the surah the chapter known as Maryam, Mary, in which Jesus is born under a palm tree in an oasis. Muhammad ibn Abdullah grew up with a reputation as a skilled merchant and honest man, and at the age of 25, this brought him a marriage proposal from an older, wealthier woman, Khadija, and in the next 15 years, he was successful in business and happy in his marriage. However, he was clearly a man with a need for solitude, and for many years, he would spend weeks at a time living like a hermit in a cave on Mount Hira. When he was 40 years old, the angel Gabriel disturbed his solitude there and ordered him to recite. Naturally, he immediately believed that he had lost his mind and fled. He only returned to hear what the angel had to say when his wife and close friends persuaded him that it might be worth a return trip up the mountain just in case that it was probably a good idea to check if God was really trying to get in touch. <laughs> it was easy to admire much of what followed as the merchant transformed himself into the messenger of God, easy to sympathize with his persecution and eventual flight to Medina and to respect his rapid evolution at the Oasis community into a respected lawgiver, able ruler, and skilled military leader. It was also easy to see how the world into which the Quran was revealed and the events in the life of the messenger directly influenced the revelation. When Muslim men were killed in battle, the angel was prompt to encourage their brothers to marry their widows in order that the bereaved women might not be lost to the faith by remarrying outside it. When the Prophet's beloved wife Aisha was rumored to have behaved inappropriately while lost in the desert with a certain Safwan ibn Marwan, 
the angel of the Lord came down in some haste to point out that no, in God's opinion, the virtuous lady had not fooled around. And, and more generally, it was evident that the ethos of the Quran, the value system it endorsed, was in essence the vanishing code of the nomads, the matriarchal, more caring society that did not leave orphans out in the cold. Orphans like, for example, Muhammad himself, whose success as a merchant, he believed, entitled him to a place on the city's ruling body and who had been denied such preferment because he didn't have a powerful family to fight for him. Here was a fascinating paradox that an essentially conservative theology, looking backwards with affection towards a vanishing culture, became a revolutionary idea because the people whom it attracted most strongly were those who had been marginalized by urbanization, the disaffected poor, the street mob. This perhaps was why Islam, excuse me, this perhaps was about why Islam, the new idea, felt so threatening to the Makkan elite why it was persecuted so viciously, and why its founder just may have been offered an attractive deal designed to buy him off. The historical record was incomplete, but most of the major collections of traditions about the life of the Prophet, those compiled by Ibn Ishaq, Wahidi, Ibn Saad, Bukhari, and Tabari, told the story of an incident that afterwards became known as the incident of the Satanic Verses. The Prophet came down from the mountain one day and recited the surah number 53 called An-Najm, the star. It contained these words. Have you heard of Allat and Al-Manat and Al-Uzar the third, the other one? They are the exalted birds and their intercession is greatly to be desired. At a later point, was it days later or weeks or months, he returned to the mountain and came down abashed to state that he had been deceived on his previous visit. The devil had appeared to him in the guise of the archangel, and the verses he had, been, he had been given were therefore not divine, but satanic, and should be expunged from the Quran at once. The angel had on, on this occasion brought new verses from God, which were to replace the satanic verses in the great book. Have you heard of Allah and Al-Uzar and Al-Banat, the third, the other one? They are but names that your forefathers invented and there is no truth in them. Shall God have daughters while you have sons? That would be an unjust division. And in this way, the Quran, the recitation, was purified of the devil's work. But the questions remained. Why did Muhammad initially accept the first false revelation as true? And what happened in Makkah in the period between the two revelations, satanic and angelic? This much was known. Muhammad wanted to be accepted by the people of Makkah. He longed, Ibn Ishaq wrote, for a way to attract them. And when the people heard that he had accepted the three winged goddesses, the news was popular. They were delighted and greatly pleased at the way in which he spoke of their gods, Ibn Ishaq wrote, saying, Muhammad has spoken of our gods in splendid fashion. And Bukhari reported, the prophet, the prophet prostrated while reciting An-Najm and with him prostrated the Muslims, the pagans, the jinns, and all human beings. Why then did the prophet afterwards recant? Western historians, the Scottish scholar of Islam, W. Montgomery Watt, the French Marxist, Maxime Rodinson, proposed a politically motivated reading of the episode. The temples of the three winged goddesses were economically important to the city's ruling elite, an elite from which Muhammad was excluded unfairly, in his opinion. So perhaps the deal that was offered ran something like this. 
If Muhammad or the Archangel Gabriel or Allah could agree that the bird goddesses could be worshipped by followers of Islam, not as equals of Allah, obviously, but as secondary, lesser beings, like, for example, angels, and there already were angels in Islam, so what harm could there be in adding three more who just happened to be popular and lucrative figures in Makkah? Then the persecution of the Muslims would cease, and Muhammad himself would be granted a seat on the city's ruling council. And it was perhaps to this temptation that the prophet briefly succumbed. Then what happened? Did the city's grandees renege on the deal, reckoning that by flirting with polytheism, Muhammad had undone himself in the eyes of his followers? Did the followers refuse to accept the revelation about the goddesses? Did Muhammad himself regret having compromised his ideas by yielding to the siren call of acceptability? It was not possible to say for sure. Imagination had to fill the gaps in the record. But the Quran spoke of how all the prophets had been tested by temptation. Never have we sent a single prophet or apostle before you with whose wishes Satan did not tamper, it said in Surah 22. And if the incident of the satanic verses was the temptation of Muhammad, it had to be said that he came out of it pretty well. He both confessed to having been tempted and also repudiated that temptation. Tabari quotes him thus, I have fabricated things against God and have imputed to him words which he has not spoken. After the monotheism of Islam, having been tested in the cauldron, remained unwavering and strong, in spite of persecution, exile, and war, and before long, the prophet had the victory over his enemies, and the new faith spread like a conquering fire across the world. Shall God have daughters while you have sons? That would be an unjust division. The true verses, angelic or divine, were clear. It was the femaleness of the winged goddesses, the exalted birds, that rendered them inferior and fraudulent and proved they could not be the children of God as the angels were. Sometimes the birth of a great idea revealed things about its future. The way in which newness enters the world prophesies how it would behave when it grew old. At the birth of this particular idea, femaleness was seen as a disqualification from exaltation. Good story, he thought, when he read about it. Even then, he was dreaming of being a writer, and he filed the good story away in the back of his mind for future consideration. 20 years later, he would find out exactly how good a story it was. <laughs> so, so that's, that's. <laughs> Um, strange thing is that I grew up in a family which wasn't at all religious. Um, my father was completely lacking in religious belief, and as a result, I and my sisters were usefully excused religion um, and grew up happily godless. Um, there was one attempt by my mother to try and to hire a teacher to come and teach us some religion. I was, I was ridiculously sort of goody-goody as a kid, so I behaved myself, but my sisters made terrible fun of him. And he complained to my mother that we were not treating him with respect, and unfortunately my parents laughed and took our side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and, and so he quit, and that was the end of religion in our family. Um, um, but my father was very, very interested in the subject of, um, of Islam uh, and of its origins, exactly for the reasons that I read about in that extract, which is that this is something that happened inside recorded history and which we could study as a historical event, whereas all the other great world religions you know, lacked that, that, that firm grounding in recorded fact. Um, so he, and he was, I mean, he was a more considerable scholar than, of it than I because he could read cl uh, classical Arabic and Farsi, so he could read this material in the original. But he gave me that, that interest too, which is why I guess when I went to, to university, um, I studied it. And um, it's odd, I mean, I think it's a, subject, it's a thing I once discussed with my friend Christopher Hitchens as well, that the, the, the fondness of atheists for religion <laughs> the, way, the, way, the way in which, you know, atheism seems to lead you towards an obsession with religion. And, and certainly, I mean, I was very interested, as my father had been. And, um, and so eventually, when I came around to writing the Satanic Verses, that, that found its way in there. The, the strange thing about that novel is that I thought of it as my least political novel. Um, <laughs> I had written this novel, Midnight's Children, which was about India and took on some of the public life of India and followed it with, this, with Shame, which was a novel about Pakistan, which was actually based on a genuine political confrontation there between um, the Prime Minister, um, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was Benazir's father, um, and the general that he had appointed as the head of the armed forces who deposed him and executed him. And I thought this, this idea of a general, you know, your protege becoming your executioner was a kind of gift that I couldn't resist. So there was a novel about that. And, and then I thought I should write a novel about what happened to me, which is that I migrated from India and Pakistan into the West. And, I, and the Satanic Verses seemed to me to be a novel primarily about, about migration. And in the middle of it, there was this material, which was a dream sequence. And not only was it a dream sequence, but in it, there was a prophet not called Muhammad living in a city not called Makkah, inventing a religion not called Islam. And, and, and the person having the dream was losing his mind and going insane. Now, this is what we in the trade call fiction. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, it wasn't, wasn't read like that. Um, the, the serious things that it tried, that that passage, those dream sequences tried to, to talk about was, uh, were two things. One is, what is the nature of revelation? There clearly is a phenomenon. The, mystic, the mystical experience clearly exists. And, and when you read the accounts of mystics of their experience, they're really remarkably similar. When you read Joan of Arc or St. John the Divine or, or the Prophet Muhammad talking about how it happened, they write about it in almost identical terms. So clearly there is a phenomenon that's happening there. But what is that phenomenon? And the, I, mean, the, I guess the question is, I mean, Muhammad describes the angel Gabriel as being very, very large. The angel Gabriel, he says, stood on the horizon and filled the sky. Now the question, that's a big angel. <laughs> so the, the question is, if you had been standing on the mountain next to the prophet, would you have seen the angel? Right. That's the question, and it seemed to me, probably not. You know, that was my view. Um, but at the same time, he's not making it up. So what's going on? And, and that, 
the psychology of that, the psychology of the mystical experience was something that I wanted to, to explore. And secondly, the question of the, it, the birth of a great idea. You know, and and the, the phrase that it recurs through the novel is the phrase, how does newness enter the world? How does a new thing come into being? And, and it suggests that a new idea has to pass two tests. One is the test of weakness and the other is the test of strength. When you're weak, do you compromise? Do you bend? Do you accommodate? Do you adulterate your idea in order to survive? Um, and that story, the incident of the Satanic Verses, represents that question being dramatized in the early history of Islam. And the second question is, what do you do when you're strong, when your enemies are at your mercy? Um, are you merciful or cruel? Are you, are you civilized or barbaric? Um, and it seemed to me that what I was saying in this novel was that both those tests, the early history, the Islam passed, it quite, passed them quite well. That yes, there may have been a moment of temptation, but the temptation was repudiated. And yes, when, he, when the prophet entered Makkah in triumph and had all his enemies at his feet, he was extraordinarily merciful to, towards them. And really, the only people he did execute, I have to say, were writers. <laughs> that, that seemed to be there at the beginning, too. You know? um, writers and women, not so popular. Um, um, but on the whole, you know, I thought it wasn't, wasn't a negative story. So I was actually very surprised when people said that it was and, and, that, and that, you know, I had done this terrible thing on purpose. Um, and, and that's how it happened. I mean, that's what happened. And then this book, coming along 24 years later, tells the story of how my real life turned into a novel which was much stranger than anything that I'd ever made up. Um, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Thank you.
Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for Thanks. being here tonight, Salman thank Rushdie. We are just thrilled. Yes? So you just spoke of your father a little bit and the inquiry in his life, or let's say the, the complete freedom from religion that mm -hmm. you were raised with. He asked a lot of questions, but there was not this pressure, there was not this frisson, you know, a fear no. of asking those questions. What changed? Well, I think one of the sad things of the last half century, let's say, since I was growing up and listening to my father, is the way in which in which Islamic culture has changed from being that more open, tolerant, cosmopolitan, um, disputatious culture mm -hmm. to being this narrower, harsher thing that's, that's come into being since. Um, I mean, you know, my father and his friends used to sit around and talk about anything they felt like. They didn't feel that there were subjects that were off limits, you know, or, or taboo. Um, I mean, even actually my, my grandfather, my mother's father, who was very religious, I mean, who, who was the opposite of my father, he was devout, and indeed, you know, went on the pilgrimage to Mecca and every day of his life said his prayers five times a day, and et cetera. But he too was, he was completely open-minded. You know, you could go up to him as a kid and say, you know, grandfather, I don't believe in God. And he would say, oh yeah, You'd say, come and sit down here and tell me how you reached that damn fool conclusion. But there was none of this, you can't talk about it. You know? So I, what I think, one of the things I inherited from my family in general, not just my father, was this idea that there's nothing off limits. You, know, you talk about whatever you want. So in 1989, yeah, I when, did. when the fatwa was, was <laughs> declared, you, talk, well, you spoke about it earlier, of yeah. course, in publishing, what, 88? September 88, it yeah. came out, yes. Yeah. And on Valentine's Day, of all days, in 1989, when the fatwa was declared. So this was, this was being pitted, you were being pitted as a, uh, an enemy of religiosity, of belief, a blasphemer, a, a symbol of the secular world. And it was later said that, uh, by Khatami, I think, to the UN, that if you, are, if you support Rushdie, you support a war of civilizations. So it gets blown up to this yes, huge scale, but what was behind that? Was that Islamic orthodoxy or was that by design? Well, I mean, I just think it's strange that the people who actually indulge in extreme violence accuse other people of being war makers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, there seems to be something upside down there, yeah. you know? Um, a difference between rhetoric and reality that's not very hard to see. Um, you know, books are books. Are books. If, you, if you don't like them, don't read them. Um, you know, uh, that's why, this is why they have books, books by more than one person in bookstores, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously I would prefer it if they were all written by me. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, that, that seems to me it's the unanswerable answer to people who say that a book is upsetting to them. If it's upsetting you, don't read it. It's not compulsory. You know, and if you're going to sit there and read a 600-page novel and then say at the end of it that you're deeply offended by it, well, you've done a lot of work to be offended. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, it seems to me that that is your problem. 
No, and the answer to it is, well, deal with it. The world is full of stuff. You know, in, in a, I mean, look, this is, this is a very divided country. You know, people are always saying things that half the country can't stand, you know, and then, and then that half of the country says things that the other half of the country can't stand. But it doesn't occur to either half to burn the country down, you know. <laughs> um, and I think in, a, in an open society, you're, that kind of argument that kind of, you know, th th will always happen. People will endlessly say things that other people find objectionable. Um, and you just have to deal with it. You have to argue your corner and fight your case and so on and so on. But it's a part of the price of the ticket. You know, if you're going to live in a free country, that means that people will have the freedom to say things you don't like. Was it more offensive to you, the violent reaction to your work of literature, or the media and a number of critics who just wanted you to apologize for your offensive book. Well, I mean, all of it was very bewildering for a long time, you know, and it did knock, you, knock me off balance for quite a while. Um, I mean, of course, you know, the, 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 the menaces were extremely worrying and not just for me because, I mean, a lot of people who were not receiving any kind of protection were also your family, my, your my, son, your ex-wife. Yeah, and, and, you know, my publishers, my translators, people working in bookstores, etc. I mean, the danger was very widespread and was extremely uh, alarming, you know. So, yes, there, there, there was that to confront. Um, and then there was this extraordinary... Uh, well, actually, it only happened in England, I have to say. It didn't really happen anywhere else. This attempt to criminalise the victim, mm -hmm. you know, this, this attempt to say, A, that this had been my fault, you know, he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I read that bit, so you could understand that I did know what I was doing. Um, but that, you know, somehow I had, you know, I broke it, it was my business to fix it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that came from all kinds of sources. It came from right-wing politicians who didn't like me because I wasn't a voter for Margaret Thatcher's government. This was you know, Thatcher's England. This was all. Thatcher's England in the in the late 80s, and uh, I was known not to be a supporter of that government. But it also came from a lot of Labour politicians, particularly the ones who had a lot of Islamic voters in their constituencies, mm -hmm. and who were trying to you know please them. Um, there were segments, segments of the news media which were very, very hostile that have been really created a character for me, you know, that I was supposed to be this extremely unpleasant person mm -hmm. who was therefore in some who, way... Who insisted when he was a young boy at school that people pronounce his name differently, you know, such outrageous demands yes, as that. Yes, outrageous demands as pronounce my name right, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Um, but just that I was supposed to, that I was arrogant and greedy and so on. I'd, I'd done this for money, and you know, it reminded me of something that I remember reading something that Umberto Eco said about the name of the rose, which is that if you were setting out to write a major bestseller, you would obviously set it in a monastery where there's no sex and have and, and have long passages in Latin. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what you would do if the bestseller was your aim. And I also th I thought something of the same. I thought if you were really trying to write, you know, a, a big, huge commercial novel, mm -hmm. the Satanic Verses might not be that novel. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's uh, uh, it's about as far from the Da Vinci Code as you could get. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but. So the, the, the British public 
is you know getting polled on whether you're a drain on uh, yeah. the national you know the, the, their yes. taxes are going to protect you. Yes. Um, I, I loved the line. Was it Martin Amis? What did he say? Martin Amis had this line about how he said I had vanished into the front page. Right. No, but it was no, it was that was great too. <laughs> was but too, uh, you have one? a lot of literary friends. You know, I they do. have great lines. But the other one, one was Ian McEwan. He said, "Oh, oh about, about Prince Charles." Yes. Yeah, he said Prince Charles costs much more to protect, and he's never written anything of interest. <laughs> 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 Let me assure you, it's a thoroughly entertaining book, as well as, you know, the great humiliations and deprivations. And, and that's the thing, that you maintained that you, and I think you said in the book that you were the wronged and not the wronger, um, right? But is that yeah. still your role? I mean, you are still the person who's turned to, and of course your book has come out at this time, you know, who gets called about the protests going on over this mm -hmm. terribly made film, yeah. uh, the, the Innocence of Muslims. Is that still your role, to be this wronged person, or is no. it fixed in no, time? No, I, mean, I, I mean, I've always, like, I've always resisted that job of being a kind of uh, talking head, you know, of being a kind of professional right. expert. I mean, uh, I mean, there was a point when I slightly slipped towards it because the New York Times offered me a monthly right. uh, op-ed column, and I thought that's extraordinary, you're gonna, you know, because you get syndicated everywhere, and you're in, you know, a hundred different newspapers on the same day, and it gives you a chance to say things. And I stopped doing it after a couple of years because I didn't understand how one could have that many opinions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I mean, but I was supposed to have an opinion every month, and it was. <laughs> It was, it was quite difficult, and I, I, ca I came to f feel a great admiration for people like Tom Friedman and Maureen Dowd who could have two opinions a week. <laughs> uh, so, I, no, I really resist that business of trying to be an expert on everything. And, and I mean, I, yes, I get asked all the time about things like, for example, Iran, and I mean, the truth is, you know, I'm not from Iran. Um, I've been there once when I was 21 years old, and and enjoyed it. This was before the mullahs, of course. It was in the time of the Shah. But I'm no expert on Iran. I was an expert on one thing, which is that they were trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and as a result of that, in those years, I obviously found out a lot about what was going on and why and how and so on. But now, you know, a decade later, I mean, I just know what I read in the papers the same as you. So all these questions about what to do with the Iranian regime, I should just... Uh, yeah, I think, well, aside. I mean, the point is, I, you know, I can express an opinion, but it's based on the same information that you have anyway, which is, is just what there is in the papers, you know? I'm not... I mean, there are many people much more profoundly informed about this than me. I mean, India and Pakistan, you know, I do know something about because I'm from there, you know, and so I have a sort of deeper gut knowledge of those places. Well, similar questions here. We do have several asking about, you know, the Iranian regime and whether or not to... Attack. It, it, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, thumbs up, down, <laughs> opinion? Well, I, mean, I would say please don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, if we look at the last two foreign excursions, they weren't that great, yeah. were they? I mean, <laughs> and... Um, and uh, you know, the, the truth is that the, the rule of the Ayatollahs is not very popular in Iran, as, as we saw with that, you know, the, the birth of that green movement, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But I can't think of anything that would unite the people of Iran mm -hmm. behind their government other than an attack from outside. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to strengthen the Ayatollahs, 
that's what to do. Well, there is, uh, after this Innocence of Muslims film, uh, a new, uh, a religious foundation in Iran upped the ante on the bounty oh, yeah. on your oh, head. Can I talk about that religious foundation? Please. <laughs> because it's the same one that always did. You know, uh -huh. I mean, all the way through those years, there Wasn't was this. It the Ministry of Culture. No, no. There's this one. Is this one, an ancient, individual, called Sanei. Oh, Ayatollah right, Sanei. the and, bounty and, of Sanei. Yeah, the, yeah, and he, you know, even in Iran, people don't entirely take him seriously, mm -hmm. and it's pretty clear that he doesn't have the money. You know, I mean, it's one thing to stand up and say, "I'll offer you three million dollars," but if you don't have three million dollars, you know, it reduces the authority of your. Position. It is, this actually <laughs> explains a great deal. Yeah, because you could say anything. You know, you stand up and say, I'll give you $250 million. You know, but if you've actually got $25.73, it doesn't, it doesn't strengthen your hand. You know? So, no, I mean, actually, that was, I, I really felt it was overreported in the mm -hmm. West. And I think, you know, you see Iran, Rushdie, $3 million right. headline. You know, and if you look one inch behind the headline, you see one ancient sort of faded, no longer powerful priest looking for a headline, you know, and that's essentially what that was. But are you still fearful at all? Do you still feel the need to look over your shoulder? No, I mean, look, we're sitting there, hundreds of them in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> they don't seem that scary. You know? No, I mean, because really, it's now been a long time. I mean, one of the reasons that I waited to write this book is that I wanted to wait, I wanted it to be a long time. I wanted to get to the point where really I could look back at this period as an earlier chapter of my life mm -hmm. and, and to be in a better place, you know, to be in a place of, 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 cal of greater calm and peace and, and to be able to, as they say, reflect in tranquility, to look back at that time and say, okay, that's what it was about and this is how I behaved and this is who, how people behaved around me and because, I mean, see, I also think that the political story, in a way, we know it. You know, that was in the papers a lot and so on and so on. But, but the human story is the thing that we haven't told for, for 24 years. Well, that's one of the aspects that, you know, I, I sort of vaguely remember this going on, but I did not remember that your Italian translator had been stabbed, yeah. that your just wonderfully elegant in your description uh, Norwegian publisher had been shot. and Three times in the back. And, and survived. Yeah. Uh, your Japanese translator actually killed. Was murdered, yeah. You know, many people killed at these... Uh, no, it was a shooting war. I mean, well, there's it no was, question, but, you know, you know, knowing that now, would you change a single word? You know, okay, what can I tell you? I, that question, I think I've been asked. That's the I world suppose. record question. I'm sorry. I've been asked, I'm but, trying you know, to ask once, you questions. Once a year for the there. last, once a week for the last 24 years, and I've always had the same answer. Okay, two you know, words. Say, yes, I would. You know, I mean, actually, I'm very proud of that novel. I think it may be one of the best novels I ever wrote. Mm. You know, and and um, and and one of the things I think is that for a long time, it was impossible really to talk about it as a novel. You know, it became this political hot potato right. and scandal and so on. It often seemed that the only language you couldn't use to talk about it was the language of literature. You know, you could use religious language or political language or sociological language or whatever. But is it a good book? Do you like it? Is it too long? Is it funny? What do you think of it? You know, that was what nobody could say because that seemed trivial in the face of this huge attack. Mm. Now, finally people are beginning to read it as a novel. You know, especially, I think, younger readers. If you were now, if you're 30 or below now, then this happened when you were four or five, 
you know, and, it's, and I think people coming to it, young people coming to the book now, they're not carrying around all the baggage of the so-called Rushdie affair, you know. They're just reading a novel. And, and then some people like it, some people don't. I mean, that's the ordinary life of a book, you know, and it's finally able to have that life. And I'm, I'm glad to have defended it to bring it to the point where it could have that. You may be the world's most famous writer, be, probably largely because of that text. Yeah. And also the most despised, perhaps, maybe. and and or maybe the most often willed or advised or employed to just shut up. <laughs> yes, yes, I all mean, of that, all of that, how all do you, of the above. How do you live with that paradox? How does that? How yeah. do you carry that? I mean, truthfully, you don't carry it, you know, because the actual daily life of a writer is so removed from all that, you know, that that you don't think about it. I mean, you sit in a room and stare out the window and wonder what the hell to do. That's, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's what writers do for a living. You know? Which is something that drove your protection team kind of crazy. Crazy. You know, I often thought that it was hard, this, all this, this secret, you know, uh, these, you know this, these undisclosed addresses, which was just me and Dick Cheney there. Um, you know, it was, <laughs> I, I often thought it was harder for the, the police than for me, because they were not, you know, men of contemplation, they were men of action. Um, their, their daily, their normal daily life was not the literary life of, mm. you know, sitting still and thinking. It was exercising and running and, you know, and it was a very physical, active life. And for them to be cooped up in a house, I think was in many ways much tougher. But, you know, fortunately they were doing two week shifts and then they could go home. Mm. And, and I mean, many of them, said to me, they said, you know, we couldn't do what you're doing, uh -huh. you know? And I think they, they sort of respected it, but I wanted to say to them, actually, this is what writers do anyway. <laughs> in a way, I'd had lifetime's training, you know, for, for, for sitting in a room wondering what to do. But there, but there are also these... Well, first of all, I guess I should go back to the, the prot team, as they call yes. them, the protection team. There was... A, I know it was difficult for you, especially working with their, the special branch and the, the security services, mm. but they were some really... Terrific guys. Oh, they and, were, no, no, they were very super and, cool. And, and, and they were really quite sweet and tender to you and your son, they especially were very, yeah, They really cared about the fact that I had this boy who was nine years old when this happened, when this began. And, you know, they could see that I needed to try and go on being a good father to him. And they would help, you know, they would, they would drive us to, uh, you know, police sports grounds so that we could run around and, you know, kick a football But you together. had on a speedboat, didn't And they? The, yes, they even got, there's a police speedboat on the Thames, you know, and they said, we're going to take you for a ride. So they took uh, my son and me out and zoomed up and down the river mm -hmm. for a bit, you know, just to, <laughs> just to give him a bit of fun. And, I mean, there was the, the, the best story, I think, was there was, they took, they, they snuck us into a kind of fun fair once, uh -huh. and, and my son saw this stuffed toy in one of these shooting galleries that he set his heart on, but, you know, those shooting galleries, they're all, you can't win, you know, because all this, the gun sights are all bent and so on and so on. So, and, and I was trying to explain this to him. And then one of the, one of the police officers who, in the book, by called Fat Jack, it was not not his real name, but he was fat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, he heard us having this conversation. And he said, uh, he said which, one, which one does he fancy? And I said, well, it's just that one on the top shelf over there. And he said, oh. I said, all right. And he went over and put his pound down or whatever it was. It was given one of these, these weapons, these rifles. And he sort of looked at it like that for a bit. And he thought, 
okay. And he went boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and everything fell down. And there was a poor... <laughs> and the guy running the stall was all like... Because <laughs> it was sort of impossible. <laughs> he, did, he said, oh, we'll have that one, please. <laughs> so, so, you know, they did do this kind of stuff to because they could see that I, it was difficult to, for us to just have an ordinary father-son relationship in those years. And we all became, I mean, you know, I probably met, over the course of 10 years, I probably met a total, maybe 100 um, protection officers and drivers. Mm -hmm. And so obviously we didn't become equally close to all of them, but quite a lot of them, we, we did. Um, get, fond, get very fond of each other. And your friends got a little fond of them. They're these big strapping guys with yes. guns. Kind yes. of fun to have at a literary party, don't you think? You know, I noticed later on, in the, as you know, things began to ease off and I was occasionally able to go into you know, the literary world, that, that people in the literary world were often looking over my shoulder <laughs> <laughs> to see where the protection officers were, because especially female people... <laughs> <laughs> because these, as you say, they're kind of, they were often very good looking and they were kind of hunks, you know, um, and, and, you know, packing heat. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yes, there was some unusual liaisons between. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the fact is, it, these were not. It's an odd relationship because, of the, first of all, they're there to do a job, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and it's a, it was a dangerous job. In fact, the protection, which was codenamed Operation Malachite, I don't know why, but it was, um, was considered in Scotland Yard to be the most dangerous of all the protections that they had to do. So much so that the protection officers were told, normally they would just be allocated. You know, you're with the foreign secretary, you're with the prime minister, you're with so-and-so. In this case, they were told that because it was so dangerous, they would not be allocated, they would be asked to volunteer. Um, and nobody would go if they didn't volunteer. So it meant that for 10 years, these people who were essentially risking their lives for me were volunteers to, 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 do, to do what they knew was the most dangerous protection that the country was being asked to undertake. Well, volunteers making and, a lot of overtime, right? Oh, yes. Well, that would be... A little cynical, maybe. No. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. They were making a lot of overtime. But still, they were putting themselves in harm's way, you know, and, and, and doing it. And they got the point. I mean, they knew why they were doing it, and they knew why it was important. Sometimes their bosses didn't. See, sometimes the kind of high-up people in the yard were much more... I mean, they, I think they were just annoyed that they had to protect this novelist. You know, because normally they're protecting prime ministers you know, foreign secretaries and visiting dignitaries and so on. And then what, there's a novelist? <laughs> and, and they would often say to me, or some of them, that they were reluctant to go on with this because, because people who received the protection of the British state normally did so because the phrase that they used all the time was they had performed a service to the state. And I, I'd just written some novels, you know. So, so that didn't, for some of these senior officers, it seemed like I was unworthy of the service being provided. Right. And uh, that, was, that led to some harsh exchanges. And, and a lot of sort of um, 
you reaching out for just some sliver of normalcy in your mm. life and kind of being slid backwards. It was a battle. It was just the battle to get bits. I mean, I realized I wasn't just going to get my freedom back like in one big chunk, you know, that mm. I was going to have to just take little incremental steps. Yeah. And, and eventually did. And actually, what I have to say, one of the things that really, really helped um, in that was the United States, because, because what happened about halfway through this period is that the American authorities ag agreed that they would have no objection to my just coming to America privately um, and staying here for periods of time and really making my own decisions about what was safe and not safe. And so, I mean, initially, initially these were brief visits of like a week or 10 days, and they gradually expanded until they was, you know, got to be like two, two and a half months at a time. And for me, it was unbelievably important because it meant that I got out of the bubble. You know, I was going to escape from that security bubble and just lead an ordinary private life and, and you know, drive my own car and go to the shops and, you know, et cetera. And it just felt, I don't know, it felt more dignified somehow to be making your own decisions. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, there was a lot of humiliation. You, uh, like, hiding behind a kitchen cupboard from a sheep yeah. farmer or, you know, locking yourself in the bathroom when a cleaner or plumber was there. Yeah, I thought, you know, two years ago I won the Booker Prize. Now I'm hiding behind a bathroom cabinet, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I mean, there are notes of bitterness, certainly, in this book. Um, yeah, at one point, you say that his his biggest problem, because he does write in the third person, there's a question about that, of course, yeah. um, was that he wasn't dead. I mean, how did you not become implacably cynical and, and, and resentful? Well, I mean, I'm not saying that I never was. Um, but I also knew that it would destroy me. You know, I mean, I, I remember telling myself very early on that there were a number of ways in which this pressure this event could destroy me, not just as a, a writer, but also you know, as a person. And I thought one of them is that. One of them is anger and bitterness and vengefulness and so on. And I thought if I fall into that pit, you know, and I'm writing sort of angry little revenge books, you know, those are going to be dreadful. You know? So don't do that. And the opposite of that, of course, is fear. So that you could, I could be, I could have been terrified into writing terrified little books, that they would have been terrible, you know? So, so it, I just told myself very early on, don't give in to either of those, you know, try and go between them. Try and, try and continue to be the person you've been and try and continue to write the books that you always wanted to write, you know? And, and I think one of the things that I am, I mean, I've made all kinds of dumb mistakes, but one of the things that I am proud of is that I think if you knew nothing about me, if you'd never read a single thing about my life, and all you were just given my books, you know, and, and you were to read them in sequence. I don't think you would feel, oh my God, something terrible happens to this writer mm. in 1989, and all the books after that are kind of deformed by that. I don't think you'd notice. You know, I think the books go down their own road, you know, and that was something that I also, both as, as a person and as the author of my books, you know, I tried to do. I tried to go on being the person I was. But there were changes. I mean, I know a lot of my close friends told me, like, after it all ended, when we were in, like, when I was in my mid-50s, say, I mean, I'd been 41 when this started, and they would say to me, you look younger now than you did 10 years ago. And if I look at the pictures, you know, I mean, I can see that too. That I think that the burden and stress of those years was very extreme. And, you know, I had to go back and read all these journals that I kept in order to write this book. 
And it's quite clear, reading the journals, that very often there are long passages of time when the person writing the journals is not in good shape, you know, is, not, is in, in very difficult shape. And so I mean, you're saying about resentment and anger and so on, I mean, I think I had to get through all that. I had to get beyond it. And that's another reason for waiting to write the book, because I wanted to wait until I didn't feel filled, filled with all that you know, bad stuff. So not a little tiny bit of revenge, oh, vindication in oh, Joseph Anton? I'm not saying not at all. No, no, there's a little bit. I mean, but I think I did try, even with some of the people that I was most disappointed in, you know, to try and sort of see the world from their side too, mm. you know? So, I mean, yes, there was, you know, my, the, the, the person I was married to at the time of the fatwa, the American novelist Marianne Wiggins, who's, I mean, we were already, you know, not, the marriage wasn't in good shape anyway. And it ended quite soon afterwards in rather shocking ways, which, you know, Read the book. You can read the book. <laughs> but, uh, but I also wanted, and I think she did behave pretty badly, but I also thought, I tried to say in the book, that it's quite clear that something had happened that she hadn't bought into. You know, when you, when you agree to marry somebody, you don't sign up for, mm -hmm. you know, all of this. And, and it, it might well have been that if the boot had been on the other foot, that I would be wanting to find a way out too. You know? So I think you have to understand that, even while you're at the same time really unhappy with, with the way it was done. Well, you write quite openly about your relationships, even the lives of your children yeah. on some level. Your um, first wife, Clarissa, uh, the woman that you eventually married, Elizabeth West, then yeah. Padma Lakshmi in the end. And, and I wondered about that, because you were really angered about people writing about you and I wondered if you had any qualms about sort of well, exposing I mean, I let, them. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I involved them. You know, I mean, so, I mean, well, Clarissa sadly had passed away, but I very much wanted, I mean, she died when my son Zafa was 20. Mm -hmm. um, he's now 33. Um, but I wanted him very much to feel okay about the portrait of his mother that was in the book, you know. And, and well, I sort of fell in love with her in the book. Well, I mean, fortunately, he was very moved by it, you know, and uh, particularly he thought, you know, there was stuff he didn't know about how his parents met and fell in love, and et cetera, et cetera. And anyway, so he, so he sort of approved that. And in the case of the other two, I mean, I did, I, you know, I told them, I mean, Elizabeth was one of the first people to read the book. And, um, and actually she, you know, had worked as a publishing editor, so she's actually a very good reader. And, and there were, you know, there were things she said that she'd rather I didn't say, and I took them out. And, 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 but I, actually, I said to her, you should be really pleased because you come out of this really well. <laughs> I said, I said, you come out of it better than me. <laughs> and she said, I know. So, so, but do you think, so I mean, there was a okay. lot of volatility, uh, uh, affairs. Yeah. Um, do you think that that, you know, pressurized atmosphere and anguish took a, a toll on your relationship? I don't know. I mean, I think you have to read the book and decide for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing about autobiography is that in the end, tell the truth, you know, otherwise don't write it. You know, there's a, nobody's forcing you to write it, you know. But if you're going to take the decision to treat yourself in a way, to, to treat yourself and the people around you novelistically, you know, then you've got, to, you've got to make them come alive on the page and that means treat them like real rounded, flawed human beings. And as I said, most of the important people in the book uh, were, were asked, you know, about, their, about the portrayal of themselves and, and kind of signed off on it. Why did you write in the third person? And this question is from a writer who said 
they're interested and traumatized by fear in writing? Oh, well, it's very scary stuff, writing. I'd suggest alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked so well for so many. <laughs> um, but, no, seriously, the reason for the third person was, well, there were a number of reasons. One was that I wrote in the first person to begin with, and I just didn't like it. It seemed very narcissistic. And when I switched into the third person, it was like a kind of light bulb moment. I mean, really, it was the, for me, it was the key that unlocked the book, because you know, I thought, oh, I know how to do that. And partly it's because it allowed me to write novelistically. Yeah. It, it allowed me to take the me character and be objective about that character in the same way as I could be about anyone else mm -hmm. in the book. Just you know, to step, take one step to the left of myself and to be able to look at myself both inside and outside. Mm -hmm. you know? And the other thing I wanted to say is I'm not exactly the same person now. Yeah. You know, I mean, first of all, I'm much older. You know, I mean, that person was 41 when this happened. This person is 65. And you know, so I'm looking at my younger self and his choices and actions and so on and so on. And also under colossal stress, colossal stress. And I wanted to say to the reader that you know, the, the Salman who's writing the book is not quite the same as the character with his name that he's writing about. Well, we learned a lot of uh, things about you in the book. One is that you were an ad man for yeah. some time. I just can't resist asking you, you did uh, what campaigns for After Eight Mints and your famous, your most critical, <laughs> your best oh. ever ad tagline? Well, I had, well, there was a slogan for cream cakes, marketing cream cakes which was naughty but nice. Um, and, and, and actually, when I first pitched it to the, the cream cake, cake client, <laughs> there is such an entity. You know? um, he said in horror, you're telling people that cream cakes make them fat. And I said, you know, sir, they know that. <laughs> <laughs> we also learned that you have the unscratched itch of wanting to act. To be an actor, yeah. yeah. I did. That was the only other thing I ever wanted to do. Mm. And when I was actually when I was at university, I did spent a lot more of my time involved in student theater than in student journalism or whatever. And I think I was probably right not to do that. <laughs> well, you do <laughs> act in, 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 the, in the film Bridget Jones' Diary, I the do. first well, ever I, Bridget Jones' I, I, Diary. I'm glad that you brought up my most important book. <laughs> 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 but also in this, you know, in the film of Midnight's Children that's coming out, I mean, you don't see me in it, mm. but you hear me, because, because uh, Deepa Mehta, the director, had the idea that I should speak the voiceover narration. Mm -hmm. And initially I was... I thought, no, that's wrong, you know, I get a professional. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, I think it'd be really good if you did it. And in the end, so I, in the end, I thought, okay, I will try to do it, but if I am embarrassed by it when we lay it on the film, I'm going to reserve the right to fire myself, you know? And, and so I did it in that spirit, and then in the end, everybody seemed to like it, so it, there it is. Well, it's funny, because when you were on the scene, set for the film, you uh, were in the film, it was a book party, and Jeffrey Archer, Jeffrey was, also, Archer was, there, was yes. also there. And he really wanted a speaking line, and yeah. you had a speaking I line. I had more than one, yeah, and he didn't have any. Yeah. And he, <laughs> well, and I'm wondering, didn't. I mean, this, uh, this is the, 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 the crazy, I guess, paradoxical thing about what happened to you, that you were the famous guy. I was the one who got the line. Right, you were the one that got the line, <laughs> so, all right, was it worth it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I could have done without it. Um, but I, I, um, 
I also got kissed by Hugh Grant. Oh. Now that's just unfair. On the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and they cut it out of the movie. <laughs> uh, well, I wonder why. You know, my first screen kiss, and it ends up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> it's so tragic. Well, what, what, what about now? What are you afraid of now? Uh, writing bad books. Yeah? I think what all writers are afraid of is writing bad books or not having a book to write. You know, I mean, I remember there's a moment there when I was a very young writer, when I was taken under the wing of Kurt Vonnegut briefly. He invited me to stay with him and so on. And there was a moment where he said, grumpily, he said, you know, the, are you serious about this writing business, he said. I thought, yes. And he said, well, the day's going to come when you don't have a book to write and you're still going to have to write a book. And I thought, ooh. That's harsh. And I, thought, I, thought, I also thought, that's not about me, is it? That's about you. But I know what he meant. And I, I mean, I just at the moment feel grateful that that day has not come. I feel like this is actually, in, in addition to being a very novelistic and entertaining and interesting memoir, but it's a beautiful book about being a writer, I think, well, on I hope some so. level. I wanted it to be about that. About, you know, I think people anybody, people are very interesting when they talk about the work that they love. If people love the work they do, and they, whatever, it, it can be anything, you know, it can be carpentry, you know, but if, if people who love the work they do, when they talk about it, they're usually really interesting, you know, and I mean, I've always, you know, writers bitch a lot, but actually most writers really love the work they do, you know, and, and, and I certainly have felt that it was, you know, I never wanted to do anything else apart from see above acting, but really I wanted to do this. And it's been wonderful to be able to spend my life doing the only thing that I ever wanted to do. And so to talk about that, to say, this is how it happened. This is, you know, the, the part of the book is about becoming, you know, about how I found my way towards being the writer that I had it in me to be. And then, you know, how books are born and how they're shaped and so on. I think it was interesting to me to write about that. But it's also about the power of the novel as a life force mm. or a force against rage. And I just wonder, we're, we're going to have to close, but if you can tell us about you know, what that case means to you, what that yeah. means. Well, what I think is this. I mean, this is where I, the, the book sort of has a sort of final peroration, I suppose, which tries to, to look at this issue about what it is that literature can be in the world. You know? and, and it seemed to me that we live in a time when all of us are under pressure to define ourselves very narrowly. You know, to, to, the, the, there's an attempt to say that our identity is just, you know, one thing. You know, we're this or that. We're American or Muslim or this or that. You know, Republican, Democrat, whatever it might be. We'd be pushed into these narrower and narrower self-definitions. Whereas the one thing that literature has always known is that we're not like that. You know, is that human, the human self is multifarious and contradictory and many things at once. And, you know, the kind of person that we are with our children is not the kind of person we are with our employer. Mm -hmm. And again, not the kind of person we are with our beloved and, you know, so on and so on. We are all, you know, we, are, we, we can define ourselves as being bald or overweight or Yankee fans or, you know... Not in this room. Well... <laughs> All right, I, pr I promised myself that I wouldn't make any Red Sox jokes. <laughs> but, I mean, I, you know, I had a bad Valentine's Day, you had a whole bad season. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist it. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? That, that when you define yourself broadly, in, you know, there are probably any of us could say 40 or 50 things about ourselves that were really true. You know, in terms of we are the parents of our children. We are people who suffer from a particular complaint of health. You know, where we have, yes, we have political opinions, we have height issues, we have short-sightedness. We have, you know, all, there's all sorts of ways in which we can describe ourselves. And the more broadly we describe ourselves, the easier it is to find common ground with other people. Because you might disagree strongly with people about something, but find that you agree or have sympathies or the same feelings about another thing. You know? so, and what literature has always done is to say, look at us, we are complicated people. We are not one-dimensional. We are not narrow. We are broad and complex and contradictory. And that's what is wonderful about us. You know? And I think that's one of the things, especially in an age where we're being asked to narrow ourselves down, that literature can remind us we are not narrow. We are broad and deep. So is that what you were fighting for? Yeah, I think so. That and not being killed. <laughs> Before we close, I do have several people to thank because this is quite a production and I'm so grateful for the executive producer and live stage presentation director, Patricia Lynch, associate producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott, the New Hampshire Public Radio president who's here, Betsy Gardella, our NHPR producers, Taylor Quimby and Sarah Plord, live sound and recording engineer, Mike Marchand, photography tonight by David J. Murray of Clear Eye Photo, give it up for musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And tremendous thanks, honor, and all good things to Salman Rushdie for joining us tonight. <laughs>